If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to Galatians chapter 4. It's a reminder as we gather together that we already have God's Word in front of us, that we didn't initiate this with God, that God initiated with us. And so we get to, in response to His Word, we get to listen, we get to respond to it. So Galatians chapter 4 is where we are this morning, starting in verse 12. This is the Word of the Apostle Paul as he's carried along by the Spirit, starting in verse 12. He says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for who I am in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish that I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is God's Word. Now one of the, the songs that... My son likes, he's three and a half now, that has been on repeat often in our home, is, is a song called, uh, by, by King Louis, or about King Louis. Not King Louis from France, but King Louis from the Jungle Book, the orangutan King Louis. It's a song that you're probably familiar with, it's, it's I Want to Be Like You, and he loves that song. Just the drums and the jungle beat, I guess, really get him going, he likes it. And I want to be like you is this, this orangutan trying to be like a person. He, he's singing out like basically like, hey, show me what it is to be a man. And specifically he wants to know how to make fire to be more powerful, to be a man like, like Mowgli in the Jungle Book. But that, that song could have been kind of a theme song in a sense for the Galatians when Paul initially comes to them. He comes and he's received very, very warmly in his initial coming to them. They, they, they welcome him. They see him as one who has the, the message of the gospel, something that is true. They receive him as if he were Christ Jesus himself. They receive his message as truth. And so it's, in a sense they're saying to him, like, we want to be like you, not because we think that Paul is so great, but because we believe your message is true and right and good. And so in a sense that could have been their theme song. But somewhere along the line, after Paul left the churches of Galatia, that shifted. Opponents crept in, slithered in, and, and started saying another message. And they started undermining and discrediting Paul and his message that he had given them at first. And so the book of Galatians, written to these churches in Galatia, has, has been Paul calling them back to relationship, not just with him, but into the gospel. He's been calling them back, and that's included, as we saw in chapter 1, astonishment that they so quickly left the gospel behind, uh, as they left Paul and his message behind. It included a lot of theological arguments. Up to this point, we've seen all sorts of theological arguments of, of how you're justified by faith through Christ alone, that you're not justified by, by doing the law, by any of your good works, by any sort of law that you could come up with. You're not justified, made right in God's sight through that. He's been arguing through biblical theology, looking back and saying, what's the purpose of the promises that God made to Abraham? What's the purpose of the law? And how does that apply to us today? And here he comes in chapter 4 at the end, and, and he makes a more personal appeal. And he says to them, become as I am. Become like Paul. Free from the law because he's justified by his faith. His hope is that through his theological arguments, his biblical theological arguments, and then this personal appeal, that they will want to be like him. 
So having laid a sturdy theological foundation, he gets personal with his concern as you read in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Now that's an interesting way to say something, right? Become as I am. This is actually in the book of Galatians. This is the first command for them to like apply, right? This is the first command. There's all sorts of implications of all that he said so far. But this is the first command of taking action, of calling them to action in the entire book. And it's this, become as I am. Well, Paul is many things. He's an apostle. He's a preacher of the gospel. He's, he's a Jewish man. He's from Tarsus. There's all sorts of things we could say about Paul. So what is Paul saying when he says, become as I am? And doesn't that sound a little bit arrogant? Become as I am. Well, Paul isn't trying to gather a bunch of, of Pauline adherents. He doesn't want a bunch of little Pauls running around claiming his name and following after him. I think that's clear because we see this in 1 Corinthians 12, where one of the first things that he gets on the church of Corinth about is their division within their church. And so he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, he says to them, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And he says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? The answer is no way. And so don't don't claim my name and then divide off of it and say that you're going to follow me. That's not what he wants. He even says later on, chapter 3, in verse 5, he says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They're servants through whom you have believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything. What a great line. They're not anything. Paul doesn't want adherence. He doesn't want little people following him and claiming his name. So when he's saying become as I am, what is he, what is he actually getting at? All this imitate me stuff has a different end than just imitating Paul himself. And we should know that the end is for him, is for they, them to follow Jesus, to be like Christ. Here he addresses them and he says, brothers. So it's, it seems as if he still thinks that they're in the, in the family. That, they're still, that they are believers. That they're followers of Jesus already. And so in context, what is he commanding them? Well, he's, he's talked a lot about how to be sons of God. How to be heirs of the promises of God. And it's all been through faith, not through the law. And he says now that you're sons and heirs through faith. You're, now, you're free of the law. And so become as I am, because I've already become as you were and you are, is a command for them to be free from the law because they have faith in Jesus. Paul became like them. He became like Gentiles. He went to them. He taught them. He ate with them. He even opposed Peter to his face when he refused to eat with them at a certain time. And so in other words, Paul has become, in a sense, like a Gentile. He hasn't followed all the laws to reach them. He became like they were, and he says, now become like I am, because we're free from the law because of what Christ has done. So all of his arguments about justification, about being included in the people of God through through the promises that they've received through faith, they they lead to here. That is, believers are to be like Titus, who was a Greek, who said he wasn't even required to be circumcised. They're to be like Peter when he goes to Cornelius' house, where, where Jews and Gentiles weren't supposed to have that sort of close association. Peter goes right in because he'd received a vision from the Lord. That's what believers are to be like. Why were they to be like this? Why were they to follow this example? Because they trusted in the gospel. Because they believed 
in their hearts that Jesus is enough for them to be justified, that they don't need anything else. And that is what it means. To believe the gospel is to believe that we are justified by our faith in Jesus alone, not through the law, that we are sons of God, that we are as much a part of the family of God as we can be, that we are heirs of all the promises of God, not based on our performance or our works or what we can do, but based on what Jesus has done for us. It's through Jesus. And this means that we are free from justification through the law. It's no longer what we use to justify us. And in fact, Paul says, you never could have been justified that way. We're free from that. It means that we're free from the curse of the law because we couldn't rightly carry it out. And a curse would land upon us. But in Christ, now that curse has been lifted because He took it upon Himself. Now we don't have to fear rejection because we failed to keep the law because we're justified apart from the law. Now we don't have to fear the the, the sense of pride and boasting and say, hey, look what all the law that I've done, surely I'm part of the people of God. He says, no, that's rejected as well because you're justified by what Christ has done. The law can't justify. It can't improve your standing before God. It can't make you more the people of God. And so to submit to it again is to be anti-gospel. And is to say, Paul said this earlier, that Jesus died for no purpose, that his sacrifice had no meaning. Because now you're trying to be justified apart from that. So instead, as believers, we follow in a faithful line of people. We uphold the gospel and the honor of Jesus by being free from the law. So Paul's first command that actually calls them to action is full of warmth. Brothers, I entreat you, do this. It takes on a very personal tone, but it's not as we would probably read it originally. He doesn't want people to just be like him. And he continues. He says, you did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So Paul recalls to them, very personal touch here, their their warm reception initially, how well they treated him in in what he says are less than ideal conditions. It wasn't as if everything was, was perfect, things were going really, really well. No, like these were not ideal conditions. Paul first preached to them, he says, because of a bodily ailment. And there's all sorts of theories about what this bodily ailment is. I've heard malaria, epilepsy, some sort of eye thing that I can't say. I'm going to call it pink eye because that seems like could be something that's going on here. They say later, people have the eye, eye thing because they say later, he says, you know, you, you get out, shut your eyes, give them to me. So they think maybe it's an eye situation that Paul has. Could have been pink eye. We, we don't know what the ailment is. But whatever it was, it opened up the door for Paul to preach the gospel. Did you see that? That's how he preached the gospel to them at first, was because of this bodily ailment. Often I think that we apply, like, strange and unbiblical grids or tests to determining God's will. And one of them that we often fall prey to is is kind of the test of ease or, or comfort, maybe. In other words, I say like, hey, I know God wants this because this good thing happened. So that must mean I'm, I'm following after God's will. Or we'll do the opposite. I know this can't be what God wants because this bad thing happened. Clearly, that's a closed door from God. But Paul and the Bible, they, they don't do this. Right? Suffering and persecution, and pain and discomfort, all of these things are, are never in the Scripture seen as closed doors. They go, oh, that can't be the will of God because that's hard. There's all sorts of hard things all through the Scripture, and we know they're the will of the Lord. In fact, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul says this. It's an interesting way to put it. He says, A wide door for effective work has opened to me. 
Okay, if we stop there and we say, because everything is easy, because I'm being warmly received here, because people started to like me and now I have a voice in there. No, he's in Ephesus and people hate him. They started a riot because he was there. There was a, a, an idol maker that wanted to kill him. But he says that there's a wide door of effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Those are not things that we normally put together in determining the will of God. There's lots of adversaries, there's lots of problems, there's lots of pain. That means I go away from that. That's how we normally would think, but the Scripture doesn't say that. In fact, Paul tells Timothy later, you need to expect persecution. You're going to live a godly life? You need to expect persecution. Peter tells his people in his letter, he says, don't be surprised when you face all these fiery trials. James says, hey, count it joy when you, when, when you face trials of various kinds. Like all this is going on, and there are sufferings in, in many, many ways throughout the Scripture, and none of them are just closed doors. Amen. Or liabilities or disadvantages. There are sufferings that Paul faced and others faced, and maybe even some of us have faced directly from gospel ministry. And there are others like shipwrecks, pink eye, all sorts of various trials. And God uses all of it. And He can use all of it. And so we should be careful about what we see as a liability to gospel ministry and an open door to the gospel. We should be careful of what we see as disadvantages and closed doors to the will of the Lord. Because all of these things can be used for the spread of the gospel. For our ministries. And all of them could be in line with the will of the Lord. Often in the Bible, God uses things like pink eye and shipwrecks as the very means for accomplishing His will. Here Paul gets some sort of bodily ailments and the Galatians hear the gospel. How how many lives were changed because Paul got this bodily ailment? How, How much was altered because he preached because of this bodily ailment? And part of the reason this happened was, was that Paul's, Paul has some intentionality with his life. Right? This bodily ailment, for him, it led to an opportunity because he was looking for opportunities to serve the Lord. He still had to preach the gospel. It was still a, as he says here, I preached the gospel to you first. It was still a preached gospel. Paul still had to preach it. It wasn't automatic because he got the bodily ailment. He still had to preach it. But this was Paul's mission. This was his life. This is what he wanted. He said in Romans 15 that, that he wanted to proclaim Christ where he hasn't been named. He says in Acts 20, he says, I don't count my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I might finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That was what Paul's goal. That was what he was after. And so when he gets a bodily ailment, he doesn't say, well, let's set aside that goal. He dives into that goal. If this provides an opportunity for me to preach the gospel to the Galatians, that's what I'm going to do because that's my life. And that should be our goal. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. God has entrusted this to us believers. God has sent us out to do this. He has empowered us for this work. And if our goal is not to testify to the gospel, then absolutely, bodily ailments, pink eyes, shipwrecks, all those things are liabilities, disadvantages, closed doors. But if God has given us this goal as believers to testify to the gospel, the grace of God, then ailments and pains and persecutions and all of those things aren't liabilities, they aren't disadvantages because we serve a God who reigns over all and He can use all for His glory. God uses our weaknesses and what does He use them for? He uses them to display His strength, His power, His sufficiency. His work. God reigns. And He, as the one who reigns over all, can use all. And what He uses is willing servants. Not perfect servants who have the best eyesight and never get pink eye, or never get in shipwrecks, or never persecuted. He uses faithful servants who are willing to serve Him however they can. And so whatever Paul has suffered, 
He was received warmly, even though if it was pink eye or something like that, you could see how it would be a trial. And he says, this was a trial to them, verse 14, though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. You, you know that in that time, and, and, in, and in our time, right, a bodily ailment would have been seen as a weakness. Would have been seen maybe as, and maybe even today still, a sign that you're not from God. Right? People from God show power. They show strength. They show that they have things together. They don't show weakness. They don't have bodily ailments that are keeping them down. That, that even maybe push them off course. So now they're in Galatia when they weren't supposed to be. Like That's not what happens. That's a sign that you're not from God. But here, Paul goes and, and he preaches the gospel. And they, they receive him as if he's God's messenger. As if he's an angel or Christ. Despite his weakness. And so they're understanding that this man is, is teaching truth to us. He's telling us something that's important. It has more depth than just what's on the outside. Like there's something to this. In other words, I think that we could say that the Spirit's at work. Paul said that they, they believed and they received the gospel upon hearing with faith. In other words, the Spirit was at work when he preached the gospel. And so he says, verse 15, What then has become of this? What's become of your blessedness? What, what's happened? To, to what was originally going on. They had heard the gospel. They received the Holy Spirit by faith. They recognized it as the work of God, not the work of a man. And so what's, what's happened? After Paul preached and they believed that he didn't tell them, like, here, you need to believe this gospel and keep this law. He didn't give them the law. He didn't say you need to be circumcised. He didn't say, like, let's not baptize you, let's circumcise you, and let's get this thing set the right way. He says, there's a Jesus to believe in, not a law to keep. And in turning to the law, then, after Paul left... To add to their salvation, they're forgetting that original blessing that they had at first. They're leaving it. They're going away from it. Their reception of the gospel was evident at first. And even Paul gives testimony to this. He says at the end of verse 15, I testify that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Right? So Paul is saying like it seems like everything was in place where you were receiving the gospel. You even showed your response to the gospel by how you treated me. You warmly received me. You would have even gouged it. In other words, he's saying you would have done anything for me. And so it leads to this confusion that Paul has. And he says in verse 16, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? You'd received me as a messenger of God. You received me as Jesus himself. You'd received the gospel message. The spirit was at work. You saw it all as the work of God. Now what's going on? Seemed evident that you'd received the gospel, but, but now what's, what's happening? Why are you turning from it? They're, they're turning from that gospel message, and there's opposition to Paul. They're, they're listening to things from opponents that they wouldn't have listened to before. They're, seems like they're moving away from the gospel. That's why you see the astonishment that Paul has in chapter 1. They're turning from Paul, and their opposition to him now, as if he's an enemy to them, it is maybe evidence that they're turning not just from Paul, but from the gospel itself. Paul went from having this, this warm reception to some sort of, we don't know what degree of, of opposition, even being an enemy to the, the Galatians, even though he says, my, my message hasn't changed. I've been telling you the truth from the beginning to the end. Initially, they were friends, and, and they helped him, they received his message as truth, and now he says, now have I become an opponent? Because nothing's changed with me. I, I, I've been telling the truth. I should still be your friend. There was a shift somewhere along the line as opponents crept in and started painting Paul as an enemy. And as they hear the tone and the, the way that Paul is speaking this letter, you can see how it's easy to kind of see how Paul is, see what kind of guy he is, how he talks to you like this. Because Paul's words have been strong. He said some serious things. 
But as he writes here, he reminds us how personal he is. How pastoral, how much he cares for them. Enough, he says, to tell them the truth. And that's what he's doing. I like the words of Martin Luther when he says this, that a true friend will admonish his erring brother. And if the erring brother has any sense at all, he will thank his friend. In the world, truth produces hatred. Whoever speaks the truth is counted as an enemy. But among friends, it is not so, much less among Christians. The apostle wants his Galatians to know that just because he has told them the truth, they're not to think that he dislikes them. I told you the truth because I love you. You might remember of a prophet who went to a king. Nathan went to King David. He went to King David after King David had, had slipped into sin. Had sinned against Uriah the Hittite by sleeping with his wife and then having him then killed. And Nathan is going to come before this king and, and tell him the truth about what has happened. This is a dangerous proposition because kings had power and, and if they didn't like your message, oftentimes what they would do is they just put you to death. This happened to faithful prophets all the time. Happened to unfaithful ones as well. They, they were put to death. King doesn't like what you have to say, you're, you're done. But what does Nathan do? He comes to David and he speaks the truth boldly, lovingly, and says, you're that man. Telling the truth is the loving thing. Even if it's going to cost. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says of love, he says, love it rejoices with the truth. It actually likes the truth. You're not actually being loving if you're rejoicing in something that's not the truth. Part of being a faithful friend is telling the truth. And so as believers, we need to both give the truth and receive the truth. Perhaps Nathan's truth-telling had worked upon David because later in the Psalms he says this in Psalm 141, Let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let not my head refuse it. This Proverb says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Is that our attitude toward speaking the truth and hearing the truth? By speaking the truth to the Galatians, Paul is being a loving friend, even if it offends them, and it seems like some of it has. Even if he says tough things, and some of it has been tough. But he's being painted as an, as an enemy and he's appealing to them personally. Guys, I've been telling you the truth. Just like I told you originally and you received it, I've been telling you the, I'm telling you the truth now. Christians need to be the kind of friends that, will, that are willing to speak the truth in love. And that are willing to receive the truth. So maybe in your life you, you have some friends right now that, that need to hear the truth because they're off. Maybe they're running away from the Gospels, the Galatians, or, and they need a friend. To come and tell them, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the, the message that I've given you. Ask God for courage and step into being a faithful friend and speak the truth in love. Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you have friends right now that appear as enemies to you, but you know they're actually speaking the truth to you. Thank God for them. Thank God for them. Move toward them. Sit down. Listen to them. Receive from them. Because people that are telling the truth should never be our enemies. Paul's appeal here is just that. From, from the initial reception that you gave me to, to right now, I, I'm telling the truth. I've been telling the truth. It's the same message. I'm being a loving friend, apostle, pastor to you guys. But one of the problems with their current reception of Paul is that Paul's opponents are undermining, undermining him every step of the way. So verse 17, 
He speaks of these opponents that they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. In other words, they've been, they've been selling the Galatians on this idea that they can be part of God's people, or actually really be God's people by becoming circumcised, by following parts of the law. If they just do those things, then you can really be the people of God. You can really be in on this thing. Whereas if you just believe what Paul is, you're, you're kind of in, but only a part of the way. So in other words, he's saying they're, they're trying to make much of you. That they're working this for their own gain. By doing this, they're, they're shutting Paul off, saying, see, Paul's off, and we're on, and you can be more the people of God. They're cutting the Galatians off from fellowship with Paul. And Paul doesn't just sit back and let this happen. He hammers back at them. He says, they want to be made much of. What they want is adherence. What they want is followers. That's not what I'm after. Another way to translate verse 17 is to say, they're zealous for you, that you might be zealous for them. An attitude that you don't see in Paul. He doesn't want people to be zealous for him. He says, I'm not anything. I want you to be zealous for the things of God. Amen. Zealous for Christ. But these people, they want to be praised. They want to be honored. So they're going to undermine Paul and his message so that they can receive that. They'll do whatever it takes. Paul isn't writing to gain followers. He isn't concerned about his own reputation. He's putting all those things on the line right now so that they would follow Christ because he loves them. He continues in verse 18. It's always good to be made much of or to be zealous, someone to be zealous for you for a good purpose. Not only when I am present with you, my little children, for who I am in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul's okay with other teachers coming in and, and teaching and working in the, in the churches of Galatia. Whether he's there or not, he wants faithful teaching. He would rejoice in faithful teaching that was there. But he wants right motives. Not people that want to be made much of. Not people that want to turn them away from the gospel message. And so what Paul does is he displays his sincere heart, his pastoral heart toward them. It's on display for all of his readers to see and hear. He says, my children. That's how he thinks of them. It's, it's warm. Like, Man, I was, I was there at the beginning. Like you warmly received it. You remember the blessedness we had at, at first. It was, it was warm. Until the image of, of children goes a little bit different because he says, I'm in anguish of childbirth. That's not such a warm image. Paul uses the image of labor pains for the situation that they're in. Not as happy of a situation. Not as friendly. Far from, from them growing in love and maturity and understanding of the gospel and, and growing in life under the mission of God. Being mature. He says it's almost like we have to go back to the beginning. That I'm, that I'm back in these labor pains for you. That I'm in agony because of these things. I, I need to go back. So he says, I'm laboring like a mother in childbirth over you. I'm, ag I'm in agony over you. When a woman is in childbirth, the agony has an end, right? It has an end of having the baby. That's the goal. So, moms, you've tried it. It's all worth it towards the end, right? We're going to get there and that's the goal we're going to. But, but what's the end of Paul's agony? What's he going for? What's he after? What's his goal for the Galatians? And he's so merciful that he gives it to us. Not just that he's in agony, like, oh man, I hate this situation, I wish this wasn't like this. No, I'm in agony that Christ might be formed in you. I'm not in agony that you'd be safe. Not in agony that you would be comfortable. I'm not in agony that you would be happy primarily. I'm not in agony for those things for me either. I don't want to necessarily be safe, comfortable, have my reputation, be happy, and all those things. I'm, I'm not in agony that, that you be made much of, or that I be made much of, that you be praised, that I be praised. I'm not in agony to, to gain loyal followers, or for you guys to be popular. I'm in agony that Jesus will be formed in you. I think most of us know anguish. And I think we know anguish over people. 
Think about your kids or your spouse or friends or family or neighbor. Like we, we, I think we know agony over relationships with people. But for many of us, that may be all we have in common with Paul here. Because there's a lot of reasons for anguish and agony. All sorts of reasons. Maybe you agonize over your children because you want them to be safe and so you're constantly in agony that they're, they're going to do something that's not safe. Maybe you're in anguish over your family members because every time you get around them it's really uncomfortable and you just don't want to be uncomfortable. I think fewer of us are in agony that Jesus be formed in others. I think fewer of us want to be used for that end. Maybe even speak the truth in love that Christ would be formed in others. Man, as a pastor, this ought to always be my goal for you. Agony maybe, but Christ formed in you is a must. Pastor's goal should, should not be popularity, followers, praise, comfort, safety, security, happiness, even for you guys. But the formation of the people into the image of Christ Jesus. That's my goal when I preach. That should be any pastor's goal. And you, if I get hit by a bus and you need to replace me and all of us get hit by a bus, all the pastors, you need to replace us. Find someone that wants Christ to be formed in you. Amen. And like Paul, we need to be willing to speak the truth in love that this might happen. Even if it's unpopular, uncomfortable, not safe. We should want the formation of Christ in you so much that we're willing to give all those things. Paul said this in Colossians 1. He says, Him, speaking of Jesus, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present what? Everyone mature in Christ. That's why he toils, struggling with all of his energy that Christ works in him. In Ephesians chapter 4, you remember this passage where he says, He gives the, the prophets, the apostles, the teachers, the pastors to, to equip the saints so that they all might what? Gain maturity, unity in the body. But the reality is, is this isn't just for pastors. Right? The, the, these things, that the, you see Paul's, Paul's pastoral heart here, but the formation of Jesus in other believers isn't just a pastor thing. That's a Christian thing. That's for every single one of us. The New Testament says lots of things about this. It says to love one another. Love rejoices with the truth. Love wants people to be formed into the image of Christ. It says to care for one another. How better to care for one another than we're working strategically, thinking how we can encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. It says to pray for one another. What are we praying for? That we might grow in our understanding and knowledge of the will of God and live accordingly. That we might live like Jesus. It says to exhort one another every day as long as you see, as long as it's today. You, you need to exhort one another. Bear with one another. We could go on and on and on. All of these things that we're doing for one another are so that Christ might be formed in us. That we're doing these things for one another. It's for all of us. That we want Jesus to be formed so much that we're willing to pray, care, exhort. Whatever we have to do for one another, that Jesus would be formed. And there's agony in this process. If we're going to carry out those one another commands faithfully, there's going to be agony. We're going to be in anguish at times. Because we're sinful. Because others are sinful. And when you get a bunch of sinful people around each other, it's like, well, sin happens. We hurt each other. We get hurt. Parents, you know this well. If you want Jesus to be formed in your children, there's going to be agony and anguish. Because you live with a little demon. They want their own will. They're all for their own kingdom and desires. They're they're sinners. And so if you want Jesus to be formed in them, there's going to be some agony in your life because they're going to push up against that because they have a sinful nature. 
But the same thing is true for wanting Christ to be formed in one another. It's going to be pushback because we're sinful. If you want Christ to be formed in your spouse and your friends and your family, there's going to be agony. Think of it. If we want Christ to be formed into the people of Dragontown, there's going to be agony and anguish as we labor over those people in prayer because they don't know Jesus. That's all part of us. We're willing to take all of that on because we love. But make no mistake, there, there's, there should be, if you're a believer, there should be some agony in this world. And if there's not some agony in your life, there's, there's probably a chance that you're not loving. I won't give you a determination there, but it's pretty close to saying, like, if there's no agony at all, you're probably not loving anyone. Paul's anguish over the Galatians and desire for them to be free from the law and for Jesus to be formed in them is an example for us as we see his personal and pastoral hearts. The attitude that he's taking on here and that he writes with is the attitude of Jesus. Matthew chapter 23. Jesus lays out one of the hardest chapters for any religious person out there when he gives all these woes to the Pharisees. But you see his anguish over Jerusalem and over his people. When he says, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how much I wanted you. You see his anguish. You see it in John chapter 17, hours before he goes to the cross. Jesus pours out his prayers for for his disciples that they would endure, that they'd be one. And not just those that were there with Him. He he prays for us too. People that would be believers through their gospel witness. He says for them, I I want them to be one. He's agonizing over us that Christ might be formed in us. That we might take on the character and nature that the Godhead has itself in our lives. And so hours before He goes to the cross, He takes time. Which I'm guessing is valuable to Him. And He prays for us. And Jesus was in anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because He knew that the curse of the law was going to land on Him. And he goes to Calvary and he suffers and he dies that Paul would be crucified and no longer live, but Christ lived through him. And that we would no longer live, but be crucified and Christ lived through us. His anguish, his agony, his going to the cross, all of it so that we could be like Christ. That Christ would be formed in us. So we too need to hear the call to action that Paul gives these Galatians. Become as I am. Become as Paul, crucified in Jesus, free from the law, but alive to Christ. Paul says in Galatians 2, If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And so his call to become as he is, is a call for them to let Christ live in them. It's a call for us to let Christ live in us and through us. Will we? Will we be crucified, united with Christ in a death like His, so that we could be united with Him in a life like His? The only way to do that is to place your faith in Jesus. It doesn't come through the law, it doesn't come through works, it comes through faith in Jesus. And for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, He gave us a reminder that we're truly united to Him. And that reminder is the supper that we have before us. You're united with Him in His death, His body was broken, His blood was poured out. But you're united with Him in His life. His body was broken that we might be reconciled to the Father. His blood was poured out that we might receive forgiveness of our sins. And so if you're a believer, this is a meal reminding of you of your union with Jesus because of what He has done and because of your faith in Him. So come and be reminded of what Jesus has done on your behalf. If you're not a believer, 
We want you to receive Jesus. We want you to trust in Him. Put your faith in Him. Turn from your sins and live. If you don't know what that looks like or you don't know, you have all sorts of questions, we welcome those things. We're not afraid of of your questions and concerns and thoughts. Please come, talk to us. We'd love to share about the hope that we have. But don't take this meal. It's okay to stay in your seat and just receive Christ. But if you're a believer, come and encourage one another and be encouraged by one another as we're saying that Jesus is enough for us for salvation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, for initiating with us, for coming after us. Would you help us uphold your gospel rightly by speaking it in love, by receiving it in love, but God also by being reminded of it, that we don't need to try to be justified by the law or by our own works. We're free from that. We don't need to fear rejection from you if we have faith in Jesus. We're free from that. We can cut down pride in our lives based on our performance because we're free from that. Our performance is the one that counts primarily. It's Jesus's if we've trusted in Him. And so God, help us to be reminded of that. May we encourage one another as we see one another's faith in coming and taking this meal. And God, be honored in it. God, we love you. Thank you. Amen. If you're a believer, come, tear off a piece of bread, dip in the juice, and be reminded of what Christ has done for you. We even have a handy chart for you to help figure out the flow of how this will work. Be encouraged by one another's faith.